Well, I've had to come to a hard realization, and that is that I cannot fix everything myself. I, I love to do DIY projects. Any other DIY people out there? That's right. With YouTube on our side, what can we not fix? Um, and I rely heavily on YouTube for any fixes I'm doing. But I love to do any projects I can by myself, I guess. Um, and not, not because I'm extremely handy, but I am extremely cheap. Um, so um, at, maybe I just choose to do it that way. But I'll, I'll do all these projects. We, we did drywalling in our house before. Um, and as, as you do a lot of DIY projects, along the way, you're telling other people about it. And, they, and I get a lot of advice. They're like, why are you doing it that way? Like, no, you need to do it this way. Like, they give me a better method of doing it. Or they say, here's a tool that's going to just change the way that you do this. So, you know, in drywall, you have this little hand saw. You're cutting out these holes. And one day, somebody shows me this tool, the Roto-Zip. This thing is life-changing. Has anybody used this before? Hold on. Keep your hands up. Just a second. <laughs> Take notes here. Oh, you'll be getting a phone call. Uh, these things are awesome. I, inevitably, I, I'm going to like put in an outlet, you know, so you measure it out and I mark it out and I'd hand cut the hole and get that thing set. And I'd stand up the sheet of drywall to realize my hole's off by like two inches. And I'm like, I don't know where I went wrong here. Or it's like on the, on the top side, I'm like, did I measure upside? What was I doing? And then somebody shows me this roto zip. You just put a little x right in the middle where that box is going to be the bit starts spinning you put that thing in there and you just kind of go over till you find the edge and then you just trace it around done simple right until you're like above your head doing holes and it's like supposed to end up being a circle mine looks like a number nine because it's like <laughs> where where i got off somewhere i'm not sure how i got that far off but it the phrase was mentioned a lot in our house you just look at it afterwards and go, that'll mud, right? It's like, it, as bad as a mistake as you made, just go, that'll mud. Well, the problem is, is that my first one I do is like, it's, it's a little bad. And then all of a sudden I move on to the next one and I'm like, I got this down. I'm confident, right? And I go on to the next one and I start zipping around that thing and it's like, whew, that, that's a little worse. That'll mud. And, and I keep using this phrase, that'll mud to just say it's going to cover up all my mistakes until at what point do I realize I'm just not doing a good job anymore. Like, it's just, it's gotten really, really bad. And I think that's kind of where we find Isaiah. We're going to start a new series here in Isaiah. They don't even realize how far they've gone. They, they have gone far from God, and they're about to get an eye-opening moment here. So we're going to start this series in the book of Isaiah called Future Hope. And in it, we're going to see pain, redemption, and beauty in the book of Isaiah. And it really is a beautiful, beautiful book. Isaiah is talked about as if it's the gospel of the Old Testament. Really, Isaiah lays out the gospel message very clear. And I know we're not supposed to have favorites, but Isaiah is a favorite, right? Um, out of all the prophets, Isaiah is actually quoted more than all the other prophets combined. So Isaiah has been a favorite, not just of me, but of many people. Jesus and the New Testament writers actually quote from 30 different chapters of the book of Isaiah, and they allude to another eight chapters as well. 
And if you look at the New Testament as a whole, and you look at all the chapters of the New Testament, 90% of the chapters in the New Testament have a quote from the book of Isaiah. So if Isaiah is that prevalent throughout our whole Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, we had probably better pay close attention to what Isaiah has to say. So Isaiah clearly, compellingly, he walks us through the gospel message. We quote from Isaiah all the time when we look at Jesus and what he went through on the cross because it was foretold about 700 years before Jesus actually went to the cross. Isaiah prophesies for about 40 years as a prophet. He goes through multiple kings um, that, are, uh, that are kings at that time, Uzziah, jo- Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And Isaiah means the Lord saves. That's a pretty beautiful statement. But on the other side, if you're a fix-it person, sometimes that can maybe irritate you a little bit because I think, well, I can, I can do it myself, right? I can take care of this on my own. I can solve these problems by myself. But the truth is you can't. And Isaiah lays this out for us that the Lord is the one that saves. It's not us. We cannot do it on our own. And so last week, Dave talked about that we find our independence through our dependence on God. And so when we learn we're unable to save ourselves, it can make us a little defensive. Well, while you're in that defensive spot, uh, let me warn you, as we get into Isaiah chapter 1, it's a little harsh. And, and it can make us squirm a little bit because it can be awfully convicting. But I love the way that Hughes kind of phrases this idea of conviction. So if you're feeling convicted, hear these words. That sin, it's like an infection that lives in you. And this conviction of sin is the lance of a divine surgeon, piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, and letting the infection pour out. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. So I think it's essential that, we, that we're here today to understand the sin in our lives, that we be convicted of it, so that we can turn to God for forgiveness, redemption, and see this future hope. So hopefully if you have your Bibles with us, if you have Bible, Bible app with you, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in chapters 1 and 6 for the, for the most part. So if you want to turn there, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into those chapters. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we get to dive into it today. I ask that you would use the convictions that we feel to spur us on to love and good deeds and that we would live a life that's different today because of what we hear. So God, I ask that you would just lead us and guide us and help your word to penetrate and pierce our hearts. God, we love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at Isaiah, we're going to be getting in chapter 1. And really what's laid out here is as if God is, is calling us to this courtroom trial to see if, if these people are innocent or guilty of sin. But God's people, his chosen people, his children, his beloved ones, they no longer listen. They don't know God. They have completely turned their backs and rejected God. So Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. This is the calling in. For the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel doesn't know. 
My people do not understand. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel, and they're utterly estranged. How heartbreaking it is to see God's children, his loved ones, go far from him, that they've completely turned their backs on him. And Isaiah uses his, his favorite way to, his favorite term or title for God, the Holy One of Israel. And it's used here to be in a stark contrast to the people of Israel. So we have the Holy God of Israel and the sinful people of Israel. So although they've turned their backs on God, I love that, well, they've turned their backs on God, but yet they, they still seem to be going through some motions. They still seem to be doing rituals, and they still seem to be having ceremony, things to, that are good things that, that God's asked them to do, but they're doing these things, and their hearts are still far from him. So in Isaiah chapter 1, we go, jump down to verses 11 to 13, and it says, what, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of the bulls or the lambs or the goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. They've just been going through the motions of doing the things that God's asked them to do without having their hearts in line with what God wants. So their hearts are not in it. They don't truly want to follow after God. And yet look at what God's response is down in verse 18. And these are verses that we've heard quoted many times. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here we, we get this glimpse of the future hope that we have. This is the foretelling of what Jesus is going to do, that he's going to take us in our sinful, broken state, and he can make us holy and pure again. But it all hinges on this word, if. Right? That, that, that word may be small, but it's very powerful because it says, you can be made clean, the stains of sin removed, if you're obedient. But if you choose to remain in disobedience, you have to know that destruction's coming. And this is where I'm like, this gets really harsh. Because I have to know my choice is one or the other. That I choose to follow and be obedient, and I can be made clean again, or I can choose to live in disobedience and see the destruction that's coming. And as you read through the book of Isaiah, this, this same message is given to them, and maybe that's what breaks my heart a little bit is that as you read through Isaiah, the people of Israel don't choose God. They continue in their sin. They, can, they continue to see destruction. But the promise is still there that if we choose, we can be made clean. So next after this realization of our own rebellion, we see that the nation of Israel is a people that they're far from God, that they've not chosen to follow after him. 
But then Isaiah has a very more personal moment that, that he's going to have his eyes open to see God before him. And then there's this little bit of a clash. You have this clash of our rebellion against God, but yet we see God's holiness. And how can those two things be in one place at the same time? And so in, we're going to look at the book of Isaiah, or we're still in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 6 is where we're headed, so we're going to be there for the rest of the time. But Isaiah chapter 6, we get to see this beautiful moment of God's pre presence, but it can be a little scary. Isaiah 6, 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. And before we get into this whole picture of God's presence, I think we have to understand something about King Uzziah. We're in the year that he died, right? And, and to understand why that has any importance, because to us, it's just a funny name. It's not something that has much importance to us, but to Isaiah it did. Because you see, King Uzziah was a king, and he was actually a fairly good king. But yet, he had gained so much influence, and it became, he became proud, and it went to his head. And so he, that pride brought him to destruction. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we're told about King Uzziah and, and this moment at the, toward the end of his life, this last year of his life. It says that, that he was strong and he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense and the altar of incense. So the, the, the priests went in after him as he was going in to make this offering before God. The priests were there to tell him he was not meant to be there. He was standing before God and he was not meant to be there. That was for the priests only. That was for the sons of Aaron and yet this king goes in, and King Uzziah gets angry. He has a censer in his hand that he's going to burn incense with. And he, when he became angry at the priest, it says leprosy broke out on his forehand. In the presence of the priest, they take him out of, of the altar, or they take him out of the presence of God. And he received this punishment of becoming leprous until death. This is the end of his rule, is standing before God when he was not meant to be there, and he becomes leprous and dies. And that's where Isaiah picks himself up here. Isaiah finds himself before the throne of God, says, I saw the Lord seated, seated upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. One of the weird things I read this week as I was researching this, there was a queen once that had uh, this robe with the train behind. She had to have seven attendants. It was so heavy. Seven attendants had to go behind her to lift and carry this train behind her, right? But that might seem ridiculous, but this is God's, the train of his robe filled the temple. It's everywhere. There is no escaping it. You are surrounded by God's presence here. And I think this is the moment that Isaiah realizes where he stands before the holy God, and it strikes fear in him. And then you see in verse 2, it says, Above him stood these seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now these seraphim, these, these are not angels, but they are heavenly creatures. They have six wings, and even yesterday, I'm like gawking around out at the chicken show. Planes are flying over, and I love planes. And flying is just such a cool experience. But even flying is nothing compared to God's holiness. Because they have six wings, and they're using two to fly. With four, they're using to cover themselves. 
because they understand God's holiness and being in his presence. And these are heavenly creatures. They're without sin. And still to stand before God, a holy, perfect, powerful God, they cover themselves out of reverence. So they stand before God, covering themselves. And seraphim actually means burning one. So like as we try to understand what these seraphim look like, it's pretty hard to imagine what exactly they look like as the burning one. But then they, then they start calling out to one another and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So the seraphim are calling out this, this threefold, holy, holy, holy. Now, I think we get awfully bad probably in our communication with each other. When we want to emphasize something, we put it all in caps. Uh, you put a million exclamation marks behind it in your text message. You put it in bold. You underline it. Like, we have all sorts of ways that we emphasize things, right? Well, in Hebrew, when they wanted to emphasize something, they'd repeat it. So in the New Testament, when you read through and you see the words, truly, truly, I say to you, it's, this is the truest of the truest things. So when we see this threefold time, holy, 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 we're saying that God is the holiest of the holiest of holy things. This isn't just one, two, three. This is like multiplication of how holy God is. So he stands before God, holy, but yet we see Isaiah having this whole sensory experience of the smoke and the robe and the sound of the seraphim saying all this, but yet what is his response to all this as he's experiencing God's presence? In verse 5 he says, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think a lot of times we can make excuses when we, when we think of how good or bad we are. We can say, well, I, I'm not that bad. I haven't done terrible things. I know other people that have done awful things, right? Like we, we can compare ourselves and we try to make ourselves better than somebody else. But that's not what Isaiah does. He understands, even as a, as a prophet, he understands that he is standing here before the Lord God, of, the Lord God Almighty. He understands King Uzziah just came before God and now he's dead. And so he's standing here and saying, woe is me. He understands his shortcomings. And as, as we have the triplet of the holy for God, Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips in the land of men with unclean lips. He's not just saying I'm better than somebody else. He's like, I'm, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm sinful. And I stand before the God Almighty. And so, just as he probably should expect death by standing in front of God, we see this redemptive work for Isaiah. That God is gracious to him and actually cleanses him. So one of the seraphim flew over to me having a, in his hand this burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. So this altar that the seraphim goes to 
is the place where sacrifices are made. This is the place that the animals would be given as an, an offering, an atonement for your sin. So it's as if my sin were given to the animal to be sacrificed. So this is the place that all sin was to be given. But yet, when that's the place that should be full of sin, we see that's where the perfectly pure, clean coal comes to Isaiah with the tongs of the seraphim and given to Isaiah to make him clean again. It makes me think of, if you were one of those people, I don't know if you have white carpet in your house. That would never happen for me because it's like, it, it might start as white, but then my kids are inevitably going to track in. And th- I mean, I, they're not even going to stop after they realize, you know, first step, uh-oh. Uh, it, they're going to just run through, right? And then you look at it and you go, the whole thing's ruined because of some dirt. But here Isaiah comes in as a filthy sinner and the tongs come in. They, they actually are cleaning him. So to, to think that this clean thing would come and impute the holiness to him, to think that his sin would be taken away, this, this purity, this, this cleanliness that we're given is stronger and greater and bigger than all of our sin that we face. So this God that redeems Isaiah, as broken, as sinful as he was, because God is holy and perfect and clean, it cleanses Isaiah. And then he doesn't just leave him and say, now you're clean, congratulations, go on your way. He calls him. He calls and commissions Isaiah for a work, to go out and to do something great for him. And so in Isaiah 6, 8 there, it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then he said, Here I am, send me. So Isaiah is now redeemed by God, and he's asked to go out for him as a messenger to spread the gospel news, right? That you can come from a rebellious state, God can, you can stand before a holy God, you can be convicted of your sin, and then you can go out redeemed by God to do his work. So Isaiah is really excited to go out knowing what has been done in his own life. And I think this is what we need to be full of, is the joy of what God has done in our own lives that we are willing to go out and to tell others, this is how my life's been changed. This is what God has done for me. Let me tell you about what God can do for you as well. So let, let me ask you this question. If your life has been changed by Jesus, Are you willing to go out and be a spokesman for him to everyone that you meet? Are you willing to do that? Because I asked this question before we move on. Because what's to come, a lot of times we like to end our sermon right here. At 6, 8, it sounds good. Here am I, send me, let's go. And that's an awesome thing. We should be willing. But I ask that because Does the response to our telling people change it? Because I think we'd love to say, I'm going to go out this week, I'm going to tell somebody, their life's going to be changed, we're going to fill up the baptistry, we're going to bring them in, we're going to baptize them, send them out on their way. I'm going to do it every week. Every one of us, we're going to do that every week, right? We think that's what the response is going to be, and we all know it's not that easy. And Isaiah's finding out that it's not going to be that easy for him as well. We're not going to read through all the rest of the, this, the passage here, but Isaiah is told that as he spreads this message, the people's hearts are actually not going to turn to God. In fact, their hearts are going to be hardened toward God. They're going to actually turn further from God 
than rather than turn to him. And I think that's where we land as well. As we hear God's word, does it draw us in or push us away? But we don't normally just sit where we are. It asks us to move forward toward him or it hardens our hearts and we're pushed away. And so these people that Isaiah goes and, and is telling about God, they actually choose the destruction of the world. They choose to remain in their sin and continue on. And for Isaiah, that was just so willing and happy to say, here I am, send me, finds out his message, message is not going to be so easy. And he says, but how long? How long do I do this and people not, not listen, not respond like I want? And the message gets harder. God actually says, until they're taken into captivity, until they're utterly destroyed, says until, the, it's, until they're like a forest that's completely chopped down and even the stumps are burnt. That's not exactly why we, what, what we'd like to hear when we're being commissioned to go out. The job is hard. But even in that, this is where we see the future beauty, that, that, that future hope, even through the pain, there's redemption to it. If you look at the end of verse 13, here's just a little snippet. It says, out of this stump, verse 13, it says the holy seed as its stump. See, Isaiah continues to write later on in, verse, or in chapter 11 that this stump that we're told about here, it says that from that stump, there's going to be a shoot that comes forth from the stump of Jesse. The branch from its root shall bear fruit, and the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord that comes from the waters. See, we're told here that Jesus is coming. That Jesus will be the shoot that comes out of even the darkest of things. That there's a future hope for us. God warns Isaiah, and he gives him this message to take to his generation. And Isaiah spreads this message to his entire generation and they don't listen. But I don't think Isaiah knew that generations to come would hear the great news of what he's done, that they would get to experience Jesus, and that we would even sit here today looking at his message, his warnings, his promises, to see what God has in store for us. So it's easy to look at the, the bad and to see how people didn't follow, but that doesn't overcome the salvation that we face. Jesus comes and his grace comes for us and he's able to remake and restore us greater than any of this destruction that we see. So as hard as these chapters are, it should not overtake the future hope that we have. As the worship team comes back up, as we looked at Isaiah 1 through 6, and there's a lot that we skipped over in there, but you look at it from the beginning of the kings that have come and they've come and go. Things change and it's not always easy. But we're, we're told about a king that is to come. That Jesus will be coming and we need to hold fast. Because the if statement still is there, that if we are willing and obedient, there is still future hope. Because God will take us as sinful and broken people and he will redeem us. Because he is holy and perfect and he's powerful. 
So no matter what your rebellion has been to him at this point, no matter how far you have strayed from him, until you are face to face with him, you have the moment to be able to come before him and receive the redemption that he offers him or offers to you. So allow God to cleanse you, to redeem you, and then to call you out, to go out to the lost world around us. I think it's overwhelming for me to think, how do I as a sinful, broken person come before God that is holy, perfect, and powerful and even go out to change the world around me? It can seem like a huge task. And this is, this is much bigger than a DIY project that I've, I've done. And the thing is, I can't do it on my own. I'm unable to save myself. But it's only in Christ that we have this future hope. So this morning, I want to encourage you to understand your rebellion. To see how holy God is. And to come to find this redemptive work that he's done through Christ. So will you stand with us as we sing?